I am really excited for a couple reasons today. I, I, I uh, have been at Grace Point. This is my 19th Sunday uh, here at Grace Point. Uh, well, it's, it's still early. Let's see what happens. Um, but uh, thank you. Uh, and I've get a sermon all 18 of those weeks previously. And so I'm really excited to have a week to not have to talk but to listen. And I get to listen to a really, really good friend of mine. Doug Padgett is here today. Um, Doug is the other person my height in the room, if you were wondering who he was. Um, Doug has just released his 10th book, and it's called Outdoing Jesus. And it's fantastic. You'll have a chance to buy it and get it signed after um, the gathering here today. Uh, one of the things I love about Doug is uh, if you've never been around him or heard him give a talk or just been in his general vicinity, Doug has an energy and an optimism that can absolutely transform a space. Um, and he has a way of just pulling in people uh, into what he's doing in the world. And he's a part of some really beautiful initiatives outside of his writing. He's a part of a community he founded called Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis, which is beautiful. And he's also a part of Vote Common Good, which I'm sure you'll hear some about today. So would you join me in giving your absolute best Grace Point welcome to our friend Doug Padgett. Thank you, buddy. Hey, right on. Thank you. Uh, super good to be here. Uh, uh, my first time. I've never been here before. So for others that are their first time, I met a few of you. We're in this together. So uh, in fact, so first timer, I didn't know you spelled Grace Point with an E at the end. A point. So I was trying, anybody else trying to look that up online? Like that looks like a different church, that gracepoint.net. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm learning the ways of Nashville's Grace Point. Um, but I have been a fan of this church for a long time, and uh, I'm a part of a church in Minneapolis uh, called Solomon's Ports that Josh mentioned, and we're, we feel like we're kindred, we're cousins in this effort. We've been um, meeting people all over the country that have very similar kinds of churches. So a lot of us as leaders and people sort of move back and forth. So if you ever make your way to Minneapolis, uh, stop by and see us. I'd love to see you. It'd be kind of awkward if you were just walking down the street and we ran into each other and like you didn't stop by to say hi. So, you know, overcome that. And you might know, you, maybe you saw this meme that Tennessee is ranked the second friendliest state in the whole country. Did you see that today? Second, for, you know what the first friendliest is? Minnesota, but I won't bring that up because that would seem a little, you know, we just wouldn't bring that kind of thing up. We're just too nice. We're just too nice up there. Uh, but uh, really glad to be here today. I, I did write a book called Outdoing Jesus. It actually fra it frames around uh, one of the statements of Jesus that I find to be really provocative and really hopeful. Jesus says, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and they will do even greater works than these. If you're new to that phrase, just let that sit in. If you've heard that phrase a number of times in your life because you've been around churches or reading the Bible, think, about, think on it with some fresh thoughts. Those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and they'll do even greater works than these. Jesus has this notion, Jesus' understanding of humanity, Jesus' understanding of God, his understanding of himself and God and humanity is that Jesus did some things, we're gonna talk about some of those today, it actually frames around these seven miraculous signs. So if you think the things are just kind of general, they're actually the miracles of Jesus. Jesus saying, those who believe in me will do the things like miracles that I'm doing and they'll do even greater works than these. That can be a heavy notion to some people, depending on your understanding of God and Jesus and Christian spirituality. If it feels to you like it's a weight that sort of sits on top of you and holds you down, it can feel like, oh, are you kidding me? 
Not only do I have to sort of outdo my parents' expectations, I have to outdo my performance review at my job, I have to outdo my brother or sister, but now I'm supposed to outdo Jesus? Like that can feel like an awful lot of pressure and not good news at all. But I actually think it's super good news, partly because Jesus has an imagination that we get invited into. Uh, Thinking of Jesus as a master spiritual teacher, right? Uh, I, I really like thinking about Jesus as the son of God and the brother of all of humanity. That we're all part of this big family together. That Jesus isn't some exception that sits out there, this miraculous exception. But as Stan Mitchell told me one time, uh, who used to be the pastor here, he had this great phrase saying, Jesus doesn't have to be the miraculous exception. He can be the magnificent rule for all of humanity. That he's sort of beckoning humanity forward. And part of the reason I think this is important is that a lot of people live with that pressure, that internal personal pressure. If they've grown in a Christian space or they've been around Christianity, it can feel just like an added burden in their life. So it matters to people individually in our lives, but it also matters to the world. Christianity has a great effect on the whole planet because so many people organize their thinking around it and it affects governments, it affects businesses. And if we have a vision of Christianity where there's humanity is somehow living below the call of Jesus, that changes the entire storyline for a lot of us. So I spend a lot of time not only thinking about my own spirituality, individual human spirituality, but also the collective work and how we ought to be living in the world. So I'm really excited about this notion of Jesus. Now, I mentioned that it comes out of the book of John. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that, but it comes out of the book of John. And it's in that gospel that Jesus is quoted saying, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and they'll do even greater works than these. But it's only in John, it's not in the other gospels. In fact, that's sort of the way the gospel of John is. If you don't know what I'm talking about, in the New Testament, there are four gospels. They kind of tell the story of Jesus. And then there's another book called The Acts of the Apostles, which is like the acts of those who follow. And then a lot of letters and writings and correspondence that makes up the New Testament. Well, in these four Bible uh, gospel stories, one of them, the gospel of John, is really different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John feels really different in its structure and its content. There's a whole lot of stuff only in the Gospel of John that's not in the others. Just on a little side note, I really like that idea. It's almost like the way the community of the Gospels get put together is that they're not all alike. Isn't that good news? That even in the collective storytelling of the Gospel of Jesus, that Not everyone is supposed to be the same. Not all are supposed to say the same things. Not all are supposed to make the same point. Not all are supposed to fit right in line. Not all are supposed to show up at the same places at the same time as everybody else. That the Gospel of John sort of gives us a little bit of good news that those of us who like to be a little bit offbeat, a little bit different, or frankly just are a little offbeat and a little different, that we're included in the whole community. I really like the Gospel of John for for that reason. And so it's structured differently than other books. It's structured differently and tells a bit of a different story. In fact, the seven miracles in the Gospel of John, and there's only seven of them, they're different than the miracles in all the other books. In fact, they're only in John. He tells stories that no one else tells. That's also super good news, not just for like books of the Bible, but it's really good news for our lives that there's different stories being told by all of us. That's how this thing goes. So these seven stories, these seven miraculous signs, 
they're told in a particular way. They're actually told to be a creation narrative. I'm just gonna take you into Bible class for 15, 20 seconds here, okay? You might know that in the book of Genesis, it has an early poem that it opens with. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes through a series of seven days of creation in this poetic telling. The Gospel of John picks up that same narrative, starts with its own creative poem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some of you be familiar with that, and it goes through this long poem. But in the book of Genesis, it follows a patriarchal line. And then Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and they get married to somebody who knows where they come from, doesn't really matter, not the point. But they get married, and then they have children, and then they have children, and it follows down the patriarchal family line from father to child. In the Gospel of John, it starts with a creation narrative. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in this one, it doesn't follow a patriarchal line. Matthew and Mark and Luke, they tell the story of son of, son of, son of, son of. But in this story, it says, and anyone who believes is a child of God. Not a child of your dad, not a patriarchal familial narrative, but a member of the familyhood of God. So John starts out with a poem, and then like the book of Genesis, that starts with a poem and then seven days of creation, it starts with a poem and then seven miraculous signs that I think are brilliantly designed to tell a new creation narrative for a new way of humanity. So what the Gospel of John does then is it lays out not day one, day two, but miracle one. And this is how humanity can live. And miracle two, and this is what humanity can outdo. And miracle three, and here's the path that we're on. And it takes us through a new creation narrative. It's kind of genius. Now, not, not everybody's sort of into literary theory when it comes to ancient manuscripts of, of religious traditions. But if you were, this is a really good one. It's part of the reason it has hung around so long. Well, those seven miraculous signs, and by the way, they're signs. You know what a sign is? Everybody knows what a sign is. A sign indicates something. A sign points to something. They're pointing to a path. They're pointing to a way of humanity. So in these seven miraculous signs, they're not pitched as miraculous in the sense of breaking the laws of physics. They're seven miraculous signs breaking open the possibility of human potential. That's what they point to. So when Jesus says, look, yes, I've done these things, but those who believe in me, they will do these things and even greater things than these. Now, hold on to that word greater than for a minute. It's different than better than. We live in a really competitive sort of culture and world that it can seem like what you're always trying to do is one-upsmanship. Do it better than someone else. The notion of doing something greater than is not doing it better than. I have a friend who's an artist. His name is Luke Hillstead. He's gonna be super famous someday. You should look him up. Uh, he studied under an artist named Odd Nerdrum. Has anyone ever heard of Odd Nerdrum? Huh, fair enough. Uh, Odd Nerdrum is super famous in the art world, right? I hadn't heard of him either until, I had, uh, until Luke started studying under him. Odd lives, he's Norwegian, but he lives in France. And he was deeply influenced by Rembrandt. Well, I have a big painting of Luke's that was in my office. 
And it's four foot by four foot. It's stunning. It's Rembrandt style. And my friend Barry Taylor, who's an art aficionado, an art professor, and a theologian, was in my office. And he looked at the painting on the wall and he said, he's standing there looking at it. And he goes, he knows nothing about the painting at all. He looks at it and he says, boy, that really looks like an odd Nerdrum painting. And I'm like, how could you possibly know? He goes, well, I've studied Odd Nerdrum, you know, because he's super famous. He goes, I know who he is, and he was influenced by Rembrandt. I said, yeah, that's Luke. He's my friend. He studied under Odd. And then we got together, the three of us, Luke and my friend Barry, and we had this fantastic lunch. And I was listening to them talk about how it was that Barry could look at the painting and see the brush strokes and see the style. Now, here's the thing. Luke Hillstead is not trying to be better than Odd Nerdrum. Ad Nerdrum is not trying to be better than Rembrandt. Luke is trying to paint a Luke style, influenced in the way of Ad Nerdrum. He's trying to contribute to the same lineage. He's painting on the same path. Ad Nerdrum, as his teacher, as his mentor, wants Luke to become the greatest Lukean painter that Luke could ever become in this path. That's what any great teacher wants. Are any of you school teachers? Any of you teach in universities? Any of you teach people, other people? You're a school teacher? I love it. Um, you know that what you want more than anything is for your students to outknow you. Any of us who've had the privilege of being parents or the privilege of loving another person, we know we want that person to grow into the fullness of who they are and to extend beyond us. So it's not surprising that Jesus would have a notion that you and me and all the other seven billion people on the planet now and the hundred billion people who have lived would do and would outdo the works Jesus is doing. That's what any master teacher wants. Part of what sits hard for us is that a lot of us have been told other things about Jesus. That somehow if we think we are equated with Jesus that we've taken Jesus down a notch or two. I'll just invite you at least for this morning to set that notion aside and to take Jesus at his words. That those who believe in him would do the works he's doing, do even greater works than these. Now, one, one little note. That word believe, that can seem like the if-then clause. That can seem like the outs, right? That can feel like the thing that gets you out of it. You're like, oh, for some people only. So those who believe on this side, those who don't believe on this side, and you're going to outdo the works of Jesus, and you people, well, just watch them do their thing, right? Here's the thing about the word believe. I don't want to make you feel like you're back in second grade, but... The word belief is a noun. It's a person, place, or thing. For me, I can't help but hear schoolhouse rock when I hear myself saying that. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it, ask a 50-year-old. <laughs> a noun is a person, a place, or a thing. Believe is a verb. It's an action word. It's a doing. In the Gospel of John, the word believe, the verb, is used 83 times in the Gospel of John. Now, the, if you don't know much about the Bible, these books, the Gospels, they're not very long. You can't turn a page without seeing the word believe from the beginning to the end. The famous passages like John 3:16 and 82 others, they're all over the place. The word belief, the noun, is used zero times. The idea that you would hold a belief, that it's a person, a place, or a thing that you possess, that concept doesn't exist. 
the word believe, the action, that's all over the place. Jesus' statement is, those who are living on the path that I'm walking on, they will keep on that path and they will keep doing and outdoing. Nothing about the right people holding the right beliefs in a noun fashion. There's one other phrase that's used a lot in the Gospel of John that's super important before we look at one of the seven miracles that we're going to look at today. And that is the phrase eternal life. Okay, this is also a doozy. The word eternal life for a lot of people means heaven in the afterlife. The word eternal life is used a lot in the Gospel of John as well. In fact, the word life and light and believe are all over the place. This notion of life being an eternal life It's not referencing what happens after we die. What the word eternal means, and we all sort of get this if it hadn't been recast in a religious sense, the word eternal means without beginning and without end. The everlasting, the you didn't make it up and you can't ruin it, life. Those who believe in me will live on the everlasting path. You will walk the same path. Maybe you're putting the pieces together. If you tell the story as those who hold the right beliefs will go to heaven when they die is a way to say belief and everlasting life. Or those who believe are doing, are living, will live on that path without end. Those are two really different stories. For some people, I get it. This story of belief and a place really works. For some of us, this story of the everlasting path that we participate in works. For some people, I think both of them work. And that's, that's, if that's one of you, I'm fascinated by that world. So uh, that's, that's really fair too. So what I want to suggest to you is that what Jesus is up to with the, those who believe is those who are walking on the path. It's going to be a path that's going to keep going and going and going. In fact, everyone's going to be joining on it. It's a really great notion. All right, so you want to dive in? Should we dive into one of the miraculous signs? There are seven of them. They start out with the one we're going to look at today, and then they go through six others. Uh, And I had to decide which one of these did I want to do with the people of Grace Point. And I chose the first miracle, the changing of water to wine, because I thought, I don't know, that kind of strikes me as these people. They would care about, you know, uh, having uh, having there be enough wine. Uh, Sort of worry if there's going to be enough wine at the end of the party, right? Uh, So I thought that would fix you well. It's going to ask you to entertain that idea that here you have Jesus presented as the party savior (laughs) chapters before he's ever introduced as humanity's savior. So what's going on with that, right? So, um, yeah, and I don't know if you know, but the trailer got stolen that carried all the stuff, including the remote controls that turn on that projector and the screen that comes down. So I was going to put the, passages, the passage up of this miracle, and uh, you're going to read it up on the screen. Uh, but the remote control apparently was in the trailer. So you can't get the screen down until you find the remote. It's like the epic, I can't find the remote circumstance going on, going on here. Um, I don't mean to make light of your trailer being stolen, but... Good luck, everybody. Um, So I invited Maddie and Jen. uh, Maddie, who's never been before here before, and I've never been here before, so we're in on this thing together. And Jen, who is a regular around here, do I have that right, Jen? Jen's going to do our reading too. So I invited each of them to read a paragraph. It's only four paragraphs long, and like all the miracle stories, 
They're not very long. And frankly, they're not all that impressive if you're thinking of them as a miracle to turn Jesus into some sort of magician doing magical works. I mean, of all the miracles, he doesn't fly in any of them, which seems a little bizarre to me. Because that's not what they're told to do. They're not told to, uh, stories to break the laws of physics. They're stories told to break open human potential. So, okay, we're going to hear these. Invite them to stand up. They're going to, uh, yeah, stand up and just, I mean, really read that thing with a, with a, with a, with a reader's passion. And thank you so much, Maddie and Jen, for, for being willing to do this. And the gospels go on, uh, the gospel goes on like this. This is the first miracle. This is the second miracle. This is the third miracle that was performed. This one is curious. It starts out with that on the third day, there was a wedding that was happening. And at this wedding, they run out of wine. It was Stan who told me, uh, I don't know if you all know Stan Mitchell, used to be the pastor here. Uh, Stan knows a lot of like really bizarre things about Bible times. uh, And one of the things that he knew that that we were chatting about one time when I was writing this book, uh, he said that weddings of the first century were multiple day experiences. So on day one, people would come together, they would travel together, more like you might have a family reunion. So people would come in and on day one, they would be at the start of the week, first day of the week, they would get together and then on day two, some things would happen. And on the third day was the day that vows would be exchanged. So on the third day of the week at the wedding, on that day, there wasn't enough wine. They had run out. So Jesus' mother says to him, They've run out of wine. He's like, what does that have to do with me? What am, I, what am I doing? I mean, it's a great, it's just a great moment, right? What does it have to do with me? And she says to the head waiters, do whatever he says. So he says to the waiters, put water in those jars. They put water in the jars. He says, dip it out. There's wine. Takes it to the head waiter. And the waiter's like, and good wine at that. The best wine of it all. So what's going on in this story? It's kind of curious. Maybe you noticed already Jesus doesn't get any credit for it. It says at the end, uh, Jen read that bit for us, that no one knew what had happened other than the few people standing around Jesus and the servants. The groom didn't know. The people drinking the wine didn't know. It's kept a secret. That happens in all the miraculous signs, all of them. Jesus doesn't get credit in any of them by anyone. These stories are not told to build the reputation of Jesus in the stories. And the groom, who gets all the benefit of this, because the head waiter says to the groom, like, hey, this is fantastic. You brought the best wine out later. This is is a party like we've never seen before. The groom doesn't even know what's going on. There's no if-then conditional clause that the groom's going to get a good thing if he does the right thing for Jesus. Jesus is not operating a quid pro quo in this story. 
If the life of Jesus indicates anything about God, we're supposed to see these parallels. Same goes with God. God's not trying to make a deal. It's graciously giving to all people all the time. So in this story, this curious thing happens. The water becomes wine. There's an alchemy. There's a change. At the core and the root of this story is something undrinkable became drinkable. Now to us, we tend to think about wine as a luxury, as a delicacy, as a bad habit, as a uh, uh, spend too much on that one kind of an experience. But in the first century, wine was not just for celebration. It was a way that humanity could transport water and make water drinkable. In fact, there's a great book called The History of the World in Six Glasses. Wine, beer, spirits, coffee, tea, and soda. And it tells the story of human development by having to make drinkable water. Because for the most part, humanity has allowed itself to drink by fermentation. This story is not just a story about the saving of a party, it is the provision of a drinkable source. So what I do in the Outdoing Jesus book is try to turn our eyes to all the people who are providing beautiful ways for humanity to have drinkable water. Like it's impressive to provide something to drink for wedding guests, but it's a greater than miracle to provide drinking water that's clean to seven billion people on this planet or to fix the problem in Flint, Michigan or in New Jersey. Part of the reason that we know that allowing Governments to not care for clean drinking water in this country is because it violates the human spirit of caring for one another. What Jesus does in this story is provides for human drinkability, and that is going on all over the world. There's this great project being put on by the Janicki uh, uh, Bio uh, Energy Corporation. They have figured out how to take human waste, sewage, and to extract pure what's called kidney-level clean drinking water, meaning you could use it in a dialysis machine to extract pure clean water out of it, and then the hardened leftovers from the sewage becomes a burnable source of energy. And all over Africa, they take this machine and it can turn the human waste of 100,000 people into drinking water for 40,000 people a day. It's unbelievable how people are doing and outdoing this miracle. Science, technology, innovation, creativity, these are not in competition with the story of God through Jesus. These are manifestations of it. It's great, great news. They're figuring out how to desalinate ocean water so that humanity can drink it. When you solve the water and drinkability crisis in this world, it changes the entire narrative of nations and poverty and allows people to flourish. It's going to prevent wars. Providing clean drinking water and drinkable substances for humanity will bring about peace on the planet. These are really, there's a lot going on in this little miracle. And there's so much going on around the world of people who are out doing it in technology. But this story isn't just about providing that drinking water. It's also about saving the reputation of that groom. Imagine the social consequence 
to the big wedding day, the families come together. You can understand the first century narratives around these two families coming together. The groom doesn't have enough wine to the point that Jesus' mom says, you have to do something. Now, we don't know why Jesus is there. We don't know the relationship to these people. We don't know why his disciples are there. We don't know any of that stuff. What we do know is the mother of Jesus is like, you're gonna solve this problem because this is a big deal. I did this talk in New York uh, on Sunday and a, a woman from the Catholic tradition came up and said, you know, that's one of our favorite stories, those of us who venerate Mary, because Jesus's first miracle was her idea. <laughs> it's a great line. Saves the reputation of the groom. That really matters. There are people who are doing and outdoing that part of the miracle as well. They know how to celebrate others. Some of you are like that. You're thinking about it all the time. You're the one that hosts the party. You're the one that remembers the birthdays at work. You're the one that makes sure that the kid in the classroom who doesn't seem to have friends has some kind of a celebration. You're the one who makes sure that those people whose reputations are being put down are being lifted up. You're the one who pays attention to the person that feels like they're not included and you make sure that they're included. That's what's going on in this story. In the book, I tell the story about a man who is a barber and he works with people who live on the street and he cuts their hair and he shaves their beard and he holds them in high regard. So last night we were at, uh, we did a little uh, version of this book event and I was talking with Steve, who's here somewhere, Steve. Uh, Steve's back there in the back. And I'd said to Steve at the end of the event, sort of unrelated, we didn't talk about this miracle at all. And I said to Steve, who's sitting back there, I said, hey, I just want to say, you're a really great listener in a group setting like this. Because when you're a presenter, if any of you do this kind of work, you know that some people just give a lot of energy in the way they listen, right? They kind of lean in and they kind of, and it feels really good. And if you're talking in a group like this, you look around the crowd and you try to find those people, right? And you, you kind of go back to them every now and again to get a little bit of exchange. So I said to Steve, you're a really good listener. And he said to me, he said I could share this now because I asked him last night if I could. And he said, I, uh, I, I'm working on that and I'm learning that empathy because I work with people on the street. Steve, would you say something more about the, what you're doing and the, the kind of work that you do on the street? Just a couple of sentences or whatever you like. You try to connect them. Last night you said, I connect with them as human beings. I look them in the eye. I treat them with fullness of respect. I look past their circumstance and situation and look into their humanity. That's a modern day miracle worker. It's like all of you. You have your own way of doing and outdoing these miracles of Jesus. Yes, Jesus saves the reputation of this groom, but some of you have worked hard to save the reputation of people that our society wants to set aside. You're making sure that those who have been excluded, those who have been hurt, those who felt the pinpoint and the sharp edge of hatred are being loved and cared for. You are a water to wine miracle worker. There's one last little bit of this miracle I find interesting. It's about those jars. Jen, would you read that part again just about the jars? It's in your first, it's in your first paragraph. The whole, the whole paragraph, yeah. <laughs> Jesus replied, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. His mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 
Nearby were six clay water jars that were used for the Jewish cleansing ritual. They each held 20 to 30 gallons. On a side note, we know more about those jars than we do anything else in this story. We know how many there were, we know how big they were, we know what they were used for. The jars play a significant role in this story. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is there, they're in some kind of a religious setting because there's jars for the ritual purification. If you know what ritual purification is, it means that somebody's gonna take water out of that jar and wash their hands, maybe wash their feet, maybe wash their heads so that they can be deemed religiously pure so they can enter into a religious activity. They're really used as a sign of exclusion. Sure, it includes some people, but only some people, men, could use the jars. Only people who use the jars could be included. So Jesus takes these six jars, and what does he do with them? Not put pure water for a ritual cleansing practice, puts wine in them. He defiles the jars. They can't be used for ritual purification any longer. He uses them for a celebration. He takes that which was used for religious exceptionalism and uses them for public good. Uses them to save the wedding celebration. He takes the religious exclusiveness and uses it for public celebration and inclusion. Modern day miracle workers are doing that kind of stuff all the time, taking that religious exception narrative and saying, we're gonna use that so that you become part of it all, so that you're celebrated, so that your life is given value, so your reputation is enhanced. People of Grace Point Church and lots of other people around are doing that kind of work inside of Christianity all the time. That's what you're doing, you're modern day miracle workers. You're taking these stories that have said to people, this keeps you out, and you're saying, no, 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 this, this welcomes you in. You're taking these jars and you're using them for inclusion, not for exclusion. You're modern day miracle workers. I have friends that are doing this in every religion you can think of. I have friends that are doing this in every area of life. You probably do too. And look, I am not here to tell you to be and to act more like Jesus. I'm here to ask you to notice that you already are outdoing Jesus. You are modern day miracle workers in your own way. This is just one of the stories. There's six more, I promise you, you're in them. The lives that you're living already because you are living on the everlasting path. You are participating in that everlasting path. That's what makes all of this such good news. That's why this is so exciting. That's why we set up the book table at the back so it looks like a reverse altar call where you would like turn around and walk down. (laughs) No, that was just actually an accidental thing, but I keep looking at it like it looks really weird back there. Um, But whether you buy the book or not, it, it, it doesn't really matter. What I hope you do is that you carry with you this invitation to see your own life and the life of those around you as those who are doing and outdoing the works of Jesus. And this outdoing Jesus was Jesus' big idea from the start. And that's just the way it was intended to be. So I'm gonna ask you to do something sort of peculiar, and that is turn to the people around you and say to them, 
You're a modern day miracle worker. And you're, it's gonna be like an Oprah. It's gonna be like an Oprah episode. <laughs> and you're a modern day miracle worker. Go ahead and do it. And the musicians are gonna come up and you're a modern day miracle worker. <laughs> 